impose a higher financial burden in terms of the social and the health care support, I think, to the elderly population. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to Friday's Money Talk on Radio 3. The time's 8.03 on the 12th of August. US producer prices dropped sharply in July because of a steep plunge in energy costs. The producer price index, which tracks the prices that businesses receive for their goods and services, declined half a percent in July from a month earlier, the first negative monthly print since April 2020. This was a sharp drop from June's 1% increase in prices and was below analysts' expectations of a 0.2% rise. The People's Bank of China said consumer inflation will likely exceed 3% in some months during the second half of the year, but pledged to safeguard the economy. The PBOC's second quarter monetary policy implementation report said the central bank needs to guard against structural inflation pressures and will not flood the economy with stimulus. Singapore has revised down its full-year growth forecast after the economy unexpectedly contracted in the second quarter. GDP in the April to June period shrank 0.2%, compared with growth of 0.8% in the first quarter, and missing analyst forecasts for growth of 0.3%. Singapore's Trade and Industry Ministry downgraded its full-year growth forecast to a range of 3% to 4%, compared to a 3% to 5% target made previously. Latest government figures show Hong Kong's population fell by a record 1.6% in the past year, with a net to outflow of people accounting for nearly 80% of the decrease. The city's population dropped by 121,500 from mid-2021 to under 7.3 million people in mid-2022. It's the second year in a row the population has dropped. Population expert Paul Yip, a professor from the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration, said the outflow of people will have some significant impact on the workforce in Hong Kong and on economic developments, as the group of people leaving is mainly young graduates or young couples who play a very critical part in the manpower of Hong Kong. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, and John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investment. With a view from India, it's Toby Lawson, CEO of Societe Generale India. Money Talk on Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, stocks trimmed an initial advance to close mixed. The S&P 500 closed down 0.1% at 4,207. Following a two-month rally, the S&P 500 is 15% above its mid-June low. The Dow edged up by 27 points, ending the session at 33,337. The Nasdaq Composite Index retreated 0.6% to 12,780. The Tech Heavy Index jumped over 2% higher the previous day and entered a bull market, having rebounded now almost 21% from its recent mid-June low. In Europe, the regional Stock 600 Index climbed 0.1%. London's FTSE 100 fell 0.6%. 
Hong Kong stocks regained Wednesday's losses yesterday after a slowdown in U.S. inflation boosted hopes that the Federal Reserve will slow down its pace of interest rate hikes. The Hang Seng Index jumped 472 points, that's 2.4%, to a three-week high of 20,082. The Tech Index rebounded 3.7%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite added 1.6% to 3,282. Alibaba traded 4.3% higher in Hong Kong after SoftBank settled prepaid forward contracts using Alibaba's shares. Property developer Longfor rose 5.7% after it denied speculation of a commercial paper default. Its shares had slumped 16% on Wednesday. And the MTR Corporation yesterday reported a 77% jump in first-half profit thanks to strong earnings from several property development projects. The company posted a net profit of 4.7 billion Hong Kong dollars despite losses in its Hong Kong rail business as the fifth wave of COVID infections led to a drop in passenger numbers. The local rail business suffered a loss of nearly 2.8 billion but a 7.7 billion Hong Kong dollar profit from property development helped the railway firm stay in the black. Jacob Cam, the corporation's CEO, said passenger numbers fell by almost 12% in the first six months from the same period last year. And MTR said an economic environment of rising interest rates and inflation would affect the company's business. Shares of MTR closed half a percent higher before the release. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 2.3% higher at $99.60 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,789 an ounce. Treasuries dropped, sending 30-year yields soaring 14 basis points to 3.18% after a disappointing take-up in an auction of the securities. The yield on 10-year treasuries advanced 10 basis points to 2.89%. And the policy-sensitive two-year yield rose one basis point to 3.23%, leaving the inversion between the two-year and 10-year part of the yield curve at minus 34 basis points. That's flattening from minus 49 basis points on Tuesday. And the yield curve has only been inverted by 50 basis points or more just once in the last 50 years. The US dollar sold off following the surprise month-on-month decline in the producer price index. The euro this morning trading at $1.3.25. The bucks at 133.03 Japanese yen. Sterling is trading at $1.22 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 57 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.74 versus the dollar in offshore markets. Bitcoin is at $23,900 this morning. Asia-Pacific stock markets um, a little bit lower at the moment. In Australia, certainly, the ASX 200 off half a percent. Stocks in Japan have reopened after, after, after a public holiday yesterday. The Nikkei 225 is up 1.5%. The Cosby uh, is pretty flat and looks like the Hang Seng is going to rise about 30 points or so at the open later on this morning. Times 8.10. Let's welcome our guests. I think we have on the phone Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Good morning. 
And also with us in our Queensway studio, John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investments. Welcome, John. Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let me start with the, uh, the U.S. inflation figures. As we've heard there, both uh, U.S. producer prices uh, surprisingly declined um, in July from a month earlier, and also consumer prices um, have been slowed. Um, Andrew, inflationary pressures clearly easing, aren't they? But um, have we reached peak inflation, do you think, yet? Well, I think the Fed uh, has said that, uh, as usual, and uh, I imagine I'm not putting words in their mouth, is they're not going to, to say we are done until and if they had uh, at the very least three months' worth of, of numbers. And uh, this, this is very useful, uh, but <laughs> I don't think this is, uh, this is, uh, this is it. Mm. And in fact, it's actually the contrary. Fed officials are absolutely saying we're not done at the moment. We've had three of them now come out in the last 48 hours saying we're far, far, far away from winning the battle against inflation. Yeah, and uh, this, is, uh, this is it. Remember, they, they, I imagine now we're having a kind of a, of, a, of a knee-jerk reverse reaction. In other words, they started late and they have been accused severely for doing this and I don't think they're going to stop early also. Mm. John, what do you read from this? Obviously a welcome uh, decline or a slowdown in inflation anyway, but still at very high levels, isn't it? Uh, yes, that's the point. I think um, uh, the, certainly the commodity price uh, component of inflation, um, well, well, a lot of prices uh, boiled over in the, in the spring, so not surprised to see uh, uh, that, that sort of thing come, coming into play with, um, with the possible exception of... Uh, uh, natural gas, which still remains elevated mm. uh, for well-known use, but as for the uh, you know the main component of inflation, i.e., uh, the monetary uh, stimulus, um, I think yes, we've still got a long way to go before that the withdrawal of the of the overstimulus during COVID and so on has mm. uh, has been completed, and as um, one of the Fed uh, governors made very clear, you know, you can't say with inter interest rates at 2.5% and inflation, you know, whether it's 89 or 9.1 or whatever, uh, you know, we're so far away from real, um, you know, real interest rates um, that, um, you know, th there's still a very long way to go. Mm. What do you make of the market reaction uh, to all of this? I mean, the stocks anyway, mm were pretty euphoric, weren't they? Certainly on Wednesday, uh, in, in reaction to this. Is it an overreaction? Um, yes, I think so. I, mean, we're just seeing, I think we're just seeing the tail end of um, the bear market rally. Um, Is it a bear market rally or a new yes. bull market? Yeah, uh, well, at the moment, it's definitely a, only a bear market rally. Um, I wouldn't, we're now going to go into a consolidation phase, I think. Um, but mark, the S&P 500, I think, has re retraced... Um, you know, 40, 45% of its losses. Yep. Uh, similarly, the NASDAQ, <coughs> somewhat less as so, a percentage. So more than 20% now from its low in June. So that but that's only about market, a third of the, no, but that's about a third of the losses mm. in the previous six months. So, which is about par for the course for a bear market rally. Um, no, I wouldn't rule out for further strength, but uh, we, we're going to have to see a, uh, um, a period of um, consolidation, I think, now and reflect to see how all these. Uh, different uh, thing, things uh, come out. Uh, it's worth pointing out that the, the next Fed meeting is not until 22nd of September, so there's now going to be <coughs> uh, a hiatus, if you like, where people will be 
you know, we'll be all punching air trying to guess mm. what the Fed's going to do <coughs> for, for another six weeks or more. Andrew, how much is all of this uh, uh, slowdown in inflation in the last month or so depends on energy prices? Because um, they clearly have come down, but it's so volatile, isn't it? All we need to see is another flare-up in Ukraine and, and energy could so- soar again and then presumably that headline inflation figure could so surge as well. I'm afraid it is correct, and it also it is uh, in, in a way rather blunt and a very interesting reminder that uh, the inflation might have come down, not because of increases in interest rates, but uh, because of a slowdown on, uh, on gas and oil on which American interest rates have absolutely zilch impact. So in other words, the Fed is saying, oh, it's fantastic. I mean, this is good news kind of thing, but not yet again. And uh, I'll say in which way further increases in interest rates is going to affect oil prices or gas prices and therefore keep inflation down because the two things are uh, unconnected. Mm. Uh, you know, I have, I have stuck my neck out uh, in saying that uh, the causes of inflation, not only in the United States, but in particular in the European Union also, have been uh, an external item on which interest rates have got Mm. absolutely no impact. Mm -hmm. What about in China? Um, Their inflation's at the highest level in two years, but the consumer price index is at 2.7%, way below what we're seeing elsewhere, Uh, certainly in Europe and the US. Anyway, the PBOC uh, says that we should expect inflation maybe to be above 3% uh, in some months in the second half, but it's going to take into account long-term economic growth and price stability and not going to flood the economy with stimulus. Well, uh, here we are, actually. We have uh, the gas and oil uh, factor in inverted commerce price driver in China, which is pork prices mm. once again. Okay, and uh, reading repeatedly in the last year what the PBOC and the government in general have been saying is they were concerned about completely other things other than inflation. I mean, inflation is politically sensitive in China, particularly food inflation. But uh, the BBOC never said we are going to cut interest rates or increase interest rates or whatever because of inflation. And if we were to look what has happened in the last 12 months, effectively, overall, the BBOC price, price sorry, the BBOC policy steps have been uh, easing in monetary policy not a tightening in monetary policy. We had uh, three cuts in uh, reserve requirements and uh, one very small cut in, uh, in interest rates, if I remember well. But all of them were loosening rather than tightening. So inflation was never really a, a little red light uh, in, the, uh, in the driving dashboard of the Chinese economy. John, what does this mean for, for markets here in Hong Kong on the mainland? <clears throat> Um, I think it's still going to be difficult. Um, you know, the down, downtrend is still firmly in, intact on the Hang Seng Index, for example. Um, we've seen a bit of a rally in, in, in the A shares uh, on the mainland. Uh, but again, the same applies, uh, I think, there, that, that it's probably in the realms of a bear market rally. Um, but on the inflation front, I mean, it's quite clear that, you know, we've got some very strong deflationary forces at work in China, uh, not least the aging and now slightly declining population um of course the property the property debt 
issues, which was starting to to unwind, unravel very rapidly, um, as well as on, on you know the suppression of demand through the um, zero COVID policy. So, you know, there's three uh, very strong. So it's not surprising that, that the actual inflation in, in, in China is, is much lower than it is globally, apart from these uh, volatile um, food prices. Andrew, while we're on the topic of population, Hong Kong's population fell by a record 1.6% in the past year. Um, the population dropped by 121,500 people. Uh, to just below 7.3 million. Second year in a row, the population has dropped. 18,300 permit holders came to the Hong Kong, while 113,200 people left. So that's a net outflow of about 95,000. What does that mean, Andrew, for uh, the economy here? Because clearly um, it's a significant part of the workforce, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'll take a very, very deep breath and I'll tell you right now, this means absolutely nothing, except politically speaking, it might not be, let's say, very popular or, or could be quite, quite sensitive. Uh, look, population trends, if we were, for example, to take the number one population trend affected economy in the total global universe, and that's Japan, we have been hearing about the aging Chinese population, aging Japanese population for, for more than for half a century. And frankly, the impact of that in the economy has been varied, slow, and uh, calibrated in inverted commas. So I'm not going to stand up and say that because 92,000 dropped in 7.8 million, okay, this is going to be, uh, is going to be a direct impact. Also, mm. let's not forget, in the case of Hong Kong, there is a huge source of instant fill-up of population right across the border. Who that's don't want to come, though. They don't seem to want to come, do they? That's, that's part of the problem. Well, yes, and uh, if, if a pressure develops, okay, then market forces uh, will enter into that, and uh, this will be taken care of. I'm not, I'm not being uh, 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 dismissive of that, but population trends are incredibly slow. Okay, we also have aging population in China following the, the one-child policy that held there for, I don't know, nearly, nearly more than a, half a century. And that is going to affect very, very slowly certain mm-hmm. aspects of, of the economy. That's why uh, these are interesting, but they are not headline numbers. John, let me let me put a slightly different view uh, to Andrew's. There, he he says, you know, if you look at Japan, where we have mm. the aging population, it hasn't made much difference. But here, this is different, isn't it? This is not elderly people retiring. These are young mm. people who are leaving Hong Kong. People who are if you like, in their prime in, in terms of the workforce, talented graduates that we really need in mm. Hong Kong and can't afford to lose? Or is it mm. not going to have an impact, as, as Andrew says? Um, I, I, I certainly uh, agree it's a, it's a very worrying trend and um, losing that, that key segment of the young and energetic uh, uh, policy is, is, is population is going to, um, you know, is... Um, potentially uh, very damaging. Um, but I think, you know, this may be a short-term uh, sort of surge uh, for, for, for the well-known reasons. Um, so it's a very incumbent, I think, on our newish government to, to start, um, you know, to start, uh, well, obviously the COVID, the COVID policy of the quarantine you- is one thing, and then um, 
um, you know, getting investment uh, going. Well, John, John Lee says that's going to be a major part of his policy address, how to attract talent to Hong yeah. Kong. So what do yeah. we need to do? How do we get people to, first of all, not leave? And secondly, oh, yes. get new people to come in? What have we got to do? Um, well, first and foremost, um, you know, we've got to open up and, and start... Um, all the normal businesses uh, we've been talking about, get, you know, getting getting restarted again, whether it's uh, international conferences uh, and all, and, and uh, Hong Kong's activities as a financial hub and, and, and a travelling hub, um, you know. So those are, those are you know just the basics, and then we start talking about the the, the plans to invest in uh, uh, in supporting technology uh, startups uh, and all that kind of thing. That's that's um, that's surely part of it, but. Probably, probably uh, only part of it. Andrew, what do we do? Yeah, I have been a keen student and observer of the Greater Bay Area trends and dynamics. And one key element into that, and it has been repeated, okay, there are opportunities of employment of uh, Hong Kong Kongese people in the Greater Bay Area. Uh, and it has been, the emphasis has been strangely in uh, us going there, in inverted commas, rather than they are coming here. Right. In this particular case, the net outflow is not going to the Greater Bay Area, but it's going possibly. It might be BNO passport holders or mm. any other class of uh, emigrants as opposed to people going across the border. Okay. And uh, this is, I, I, as I said, I imagine this is something which is worrying. But I'm afraid I'll have to stay with my view that uh, uh, it is temporary, it is too small to be significant and it has to be persistent over several years before it begins to make an impact. And also I remember very clearly the run up to 97, going back, the 93, 94, 95, 96, there was quite a substantial outflow in particularly to Canada. Okay, and then, well, we're 20 years afterwards, okay, and uh, nothing really significant has happened. Okay, well, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. You heard there Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investments. 5, 6, 7 a.m. Radio 3. On the phone now from Mumbai in India is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. And we've had this uh, inflation data out of the US uh, this week, producer price inflation data uh, overnight, which surprisingly dropped uh, month on month. And then also we had the consumer price index the day before, uh, which also came out uh, better than expected, although still at a very high uh, level. And what what do you think, uh, Toby? Uh, Have we reached peak inflation now? Well, I think if, uh, if you look at the stats, uh, inflation sort of didn't move at all in the month of July. So I guess a positive suggestion that we might be in the peak. But interesting, I was a bit surprised by the enthusiasm the market took it and go into a risk on mode when you still have 8.5% CPI. And even mm. if you strip out some of the factors, we're still close to 6% on core inflation. Um, so it may be peaking, but it's still incredibly high. So the idea that the Fed are suddenly going to change tact or, you know, reduce its forward estimate in terms of rate hikes is probably a bit premature. So uh, possibly good news, but uh, I still think that there's a long way to go on inflation. And the markets seem to be ignoring... Uh, the Fed officials, we've had three of them now in the last couple of days, uh, basically making it very, very clear that the central bank is far from done um, and, and is far from controlling inflation at the moment. So the, the markets seem to be um, acting maybe a little bit prematurely. 
It, it feels that way. Um, certainly there's, you know, you've seen, um, you know, stocks now 15% off their June low. So they've rallied quite strongly. So I think maybe we'll even see that peter out a little bit. Maybe we see the enthusiasm for stocks weighing somewhat. We saw the bond market start to move in the 10-year back towards uh, a less of a negative growth scenario. So maybe we're just seeing a little bit of, of, of trading movement as opposed to fundamental shift in expectations. Um, and with employment so high, you know, payrolls last Friday over half a million, Fed have room to be a bit more aggressive at the moment because uh, inflation will persist and it's not really going to come off in any meaningful way until employment starts to get hit and until the expectations start to shift in the employment side. And that's probably a little way away. So I suspect the Fed feel pretty comfortable to still stay pretty tight. And that's what you're hearing from the officials. They're mm. trying to make sure that people are aware that that's likely to continue. So is this a bear market rally that we're seeing in US stocks or is it a new um, bull market? Because if you look at the Nasdaq, um, it's up just over 20% now from its, uh, from its low in June, which technically puts it back in a bull market. So a bit like technically, we thought that uh, two, two quarters of negative growth were a recession yeah. last week. I think it's one of those classic technical uh, indicators that doesn't tell you much. Uh, Nasdaq's still 18% down year-to-date, and S&P is still down 12%, but, you know, as I mentioned, 15% off the low. So it's been a very, very strong rally. It's a positive sign, but um, I would say it's not quite a new bull market, more inclined to be a bear market bounce. But uh, let's wait and see. I think we'll see some more data coming through and, and watch what happens in September when we get the next Fed meeting. And what do you make of the inversion of the yield curve? We got to um, the difference between the two and the 10-year, got to minus 49 basis points on Tuesday. It's only once ever in the last 50 years been above 50 basis points, but it has started to flatten out um, a bit in the last uh, in the last couple of days or so, hasn't it? It's back around uh, 30, yeah, minus 34. Overnight. Uh, Pete, the 10-year year bounced uh, in yield terms quite uh, sharply uh, relative to the curve. So the curve did uh, steepen a little bit. Um, and that's probably a little bit of reflection that um, maybe the long part of the curve had priced too aggressively at declining growth. Mm-hmm. And with inflation you know, peaking a little bit in terms of mines and some of the market, the, the growth profile might be a little better. Um, and as such, uh, they you know, unwind a little bit of that positioning on the curve flatness. So is it also maybe a sign that investors are getting a little bit more confidence that the Fed can achieve this so-called soft landing, keep raising interest rates, but without tipping the U.S. economy into recession? No, I watched that movie uh, Top Gun recently, and uh, what always amazes me is how you can land a plane on an aircraft carrier. Hmm. Um, and I feel a little bit that this is what the Fed is trying to do. Um, maybe with the with the wheel one wheel one wheel missing, trying to land a uh, land a jet on an aircraft carrier because it's going to be very challenging to achieve a, a soft landing um, at any stage, given the complexity of the economy, given the complexity of the of, of the external environment. So. Um, uh, you know, are we, do we believe the Fed are talented enough to do it? Uh, do they have the capacity to control all of the elements? Probably not. But at this stage, I guess, after a good inflation figure uh, this week, people are a little bit more optimistic. And what about Indian stock markets? We've seen quite a lot of capital outflow, haven't we, recently from um, India. Any sign that that's stabilising now? Yeah, we saw some better flows uh, coming back into India uh, in the last uh, month or so, and the currency started to get a little bit more support. You know, one thing the RBI have been trying to do is throttle that currency from depreciating too aggressively, and that seems to be holding. Uh, I suspect the currency's still probably got a trend to go to, to go lower. 
But the domestic economy is in pretty good shape. You know, if you have a look at all of the high-frequency indicators in India, it's it's still tracking pretty strongly across PMI, across the GST collections, across electricity usage. And overall, um, you know, growth is still forecast to be over 7%, which will make it the fastest-growing economy in the region. So um, there's cause for optimism uh, for investors uh, outside of India to look at India and say it's weathering uh, the storm, albeit uh, vulnerable to the external shocks, particularly around commodity prices. So um, lots to watch out for, but it seems a little better environment, at least for the FDIs to come in. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Toby. Have a good weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look around the regional stock markets. In Australia, the SX200 is off half a percent. Uh, stocks in Japan are rallying after a holiday yesterday. The Nikkei 225 right now is up over 2%, playing catch-up. Uh, the Cosby's down, though. That's off 0.1%. Looks like a small bounce uh, for Hong Kong stocks at the open with the Hang Seng up about 30 points or so in uh, an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned uh, to Back Chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Andrew Work. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday morning. The weather forecast, just before I go, mainly cloudy with uh, showers, a few squally thunderstorms. Those showers are going to be heavy at times. Uh, the maximum temperature is going to be around 29 degrees. And then a few showers tomorrow, sunny periods in the following couple of days. The thunderstorm warning is in force. It's 25 degrees, 96% relative humidity. Time's coming up to 8.32. Here's Andy Shirosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. New research suggests the Arctic is warming significantly more quickly than previously thought, at an, on average four times the rate of the rest of the world. Scientists examined satellite data gathered during the past four decades over the entire Arctic Circle. They found some areas had warmed as much as 1.25 degrees Celsius per decade, or seven times the global rate. The director of science at the British Antarctic Survey, Dr. Anna Jones, told the BBC the breakup of sea ice is driving the climate change in the Arctic. Sea ice in the Arctic has been reducing. It's been melting basically year on year. And you can see how the amount of sea ice has shrunk. So the sea ice is also thinner now than it used to be, say, 20 years ago, because 20 years ago you would have ice that was there for year after year, whereas now if the ice has melted, you're reforming that ice every year. So the whole consistency of that ice is different. The French Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne has said the fierce wildfires in the southwest of the country are a reminder that France, more than ever, had to combat and adapt to climate disruption. More than a thousand French firefighters are tackling what they've called a monstrous blaze there. A senior official at the UN's World Meteorological Organization, Robert Stefanski, said he hoped it would be a wake-up call to the need to lower emissions of greenhouse gases. And the projections are if, if the greenhouse gas emissions continue unabated, you know, that hot zone or that Mediterranean climate will move north and uh, need to adapt and work together and, and see what we can do to lower emissions. You know, many things that people can do, uh, possibly eat less meat, adapt how you get to work, recycle more, use renewable energies. And at some point also, you know, voting in the politicians that they can make change. The U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has defended the Justice Department's decision to seek a search warrant for Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago earlier this week. Mr. Garland said he had personally approved the move, noting that upholding the rule of law meant applying the law evenly without fear or favor. 
He said the DOJ would make the warrant public because of the substantial public interest. More from the BBC's Gary O'Donoghue. He came out and made this declaration today simply because of unfounded allegations, as he put it, against the FBI. He wanted to clear up the fact that he made the final decision to instigate that search warrant, to sign off on it. And he wanted to make clear that they usually try and get these sorts of materials by other means. Donald Trump was subpoenaed for the material that the FBI were looking for. They obviously didn't get what they needed, and that's why they went for a judge approved search warrant. You've been listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome back to Chat with me, 